Welcome to Loving the Christ Life. I'm Brad Wilson. This program is presented weekly by the Christ Life Fellowship. Check us out, christ-life.org. We have been in a wonderful meeting with Warren Litzman from years ago when he was in South Africa conducting one of his conferences. We've been taking bits and pieces each week, and we're going back to have more for you this week. Let's go now. Here's Warren. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The subject we have been on dealing with the mind and dealing with knowledge, taken from the 8th verse of Philippians 3, where Paul said, I suffer the loss of all things for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. That has been my theme. Whatever I've said has been drawn from that one idea. I've tried to stick with it. But also, it's an endless subject. It would almost take a it would almost take an entire study of all his epistles to get to the heart of this excellent knowledge. It is a new knowledge. It is a different kind of knowledge. The scriptures bear no reference to it at any time before the revelation was given to Paul, which caused Paul to say on at least three times that nobody knew what Jesus had told him before it was told. Needless to say, that probably didn't make a lot of friends for him because everybody thinks they hear from God. And there were a whole lot of people who claimed to hear from God in his days who wrote things. But most of those things are not included in the canon of our scripture. But what Jesus told Paul has been placed in the scriptures, and it is an endless understanding. As I have told you before, I think the Bible goes to a depth that human beings will never be able to reach. It will get a little here and a little there. As Isaiah said, it will be line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. But we'll never come to the fullness, the total understanding of the scriptures. And when somebody comes to me on that level and says, well, I know what the Bible says, and they Young men used to tell me that when I taught in college. They, they used to say, I'm going to preach the whole Bible. And sometimes they get up and testify and say, I teach nothing but the Scriptures. A lot of always look at them and say, you can't preach the whole Bible. You can take stuff from the whole Scriptures if you've a mind to do that. But the intent and the knowledge of it is still locked in the Holy Spirit. And He will be teaching you things you never dreamt before. It has long been said among Bible students that a simple verse like John 3.16 is an endless truth. That every time a person writes of it or preaches from it, it goes deeper. And they see something else. And they see something else, which was God's intention. Because the mind we're coming to is not our mind. It's his mind. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. And you see there's a big difference there. Because religiously speaking, we think that what we know is truth. Well, it is truth for that moment. I like what Peter says. Truth is present. Present truth. 
but truth is always growing. It's always expanding. And I've never been able to take anybody who says this is it. Put, put us in a box and say there's no more. You believe this or, or you're not in truth. So in your walk with the Lord, you're going to have this mind problem of making changes. If you're not willing to do that, you'll never know the truth. Because the truth is always present at this moment, but there's more tomorrow. That doesn't mean that basic doctrines change. Salvation by grace, shed blood of Jesus Christ, the coming of Christ back for his church. Some things will never change. But the factors that have to do with those things are endless and are always growing. And the great blessing to me is that all of this is locked in 14 letters that Paul wrote. Just the shortest and briefest part of God's Word is where this whole truth about Christ as our life, and Christ as our Lord is located. Now you can go anywhere else in the Bible and embellish that and get illustrations of that, but you'll never find more truth than you have in Paul's epistles because that's the final gospel. That's the final gospel. Religion today believes there's only one gospel. I see at least two different gospels in the New Testament. And that's probably where I want to start talking. The Lord himself was faced with this issue. When you read John's Gospel, you're able to see Christ in a whole different understanding. That is, Jesus of Nazareth. You're able to see him in a whole different understanding in John's Gospel. Of course, that's because Matthew, Mark, and Luke are strictly kingdom teachings. But John veers away from it, and there are reasons for that. He had the obligation to write the story of Jesus of Nazareth, but he wrote it 30 years after Paul died so that he had the accumulation of all the knowledge and understanding that had come out of the move of the Spirit of the in Christ message. And while that was not his subject, he sort of bleeds into it several times, particularly in the vine and the branch message that he gives. Christ, the vine, the branch, the believer, the life of the vine is in the believer. And so he has several suggestions like that. That wasn't his calling to do that. But because of that, and because he wrote his gospel so much later, we never attach his gospel to the four gospels though most people look at it like that. But his gospel is different. And certainly his epistles are different from anything that happened in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth makes some abrupt changes in his life. These changes affect the mind. And I'm not saying that the changes that Jesus of Nazareth made were mind changes. They were eternal changes, having to do with the eternal plan, having to do with what God's purpose was even before the world was created. But still, he made changes. The most radical change that Jesus made is in the 12th chapter of John. 
In the 11th chapter, he's raised Lazarus from the dead. He has now created for himself the greatest ovation that the world can give him. And that is demonstrated on Palm Sunday when he rides into Jerusalem. But at his moment of greatest glory, he has raised a man from the dead who can talk about it. He has shown the glory of God as has never been shown on earth before. But there's a little line in the 11th chapter that says that the Pharisees are wondering if Jesus will show up in Jerusalem for the Passover. You Bible students would do well to mark this in your Bible because there are three times Jesus goes to Jerusalem and each time it's during the Passover. Why the Passover? Because he is the Passover lamb. He must be in Jerusalem on that particular date and on that particular Friday, he must be there. That's prophesied. So he will fulfill that prophecy completely. He will be in Jerusalem. Two times before John 11, he was in Jerusalem at the Passover because that was the authority of God's plan working in his life. Two times before, I don't know if it was in the Garden of Gethsemane or where he was, but two times before, he must have prayed the prayer he prayed on the third visit to Gethsemane when he said, Father, if it be your will, remove this cup from me. You see, the cup was always before him. He was sent to this earth to die. That was fixed in him. Anything else he did was subservient to that one important thing, sent to die. And so he, bound by prophecy, bound by God's plan, was always in Jerusalem, and he prayed that prayer. Is this the time I'm to be the lamb? Is this the time I'm to die? Two times before, in his public ministry, this was shown not to be the time. But in John 12, after the raising of Lazarus from the dead, the ovation of the multitude was so great that Jesus was stirred by it. And for the first time, he said things that had not been said any time previously. Like he said, except the corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. I think that is the deepest statement Jesus said. Because in that statement, he said, I have been alone. I have never raised up workers. I have no followers. I have done nothing. It has been a lonely existence to me. Well, what about it, Jesus? You heal the sick. You cast out devils. You, you raise the dead. You fed the loaves and fishes. You walked on water. Look at all the miracles you perform. He said, no, I have been alone. Why would he say that? Because that's not what he came to do. Not primarily. He came to die. And so finally in John 12 and 24, he says that until I die, 
there is no life. I haven't given life to these people. If I, if I could have heard him deep inside talking, I think he would have said out of his heart, I haven't brought them life. I healed them, but I didn't give them life. I gave them miracles. Yeah, I raised three different individuals from the dead, but I didn't give them life. I've been alone in this because he said, I can't give them life until I'm dead. So I've always attributed John 12 and 24 as the deepest scripture that reveals God because the deepest thing in God is that life comes out of death. That's an opposite to Satan. Satan brings death to those who live. Christ brings life to those who are dead. So here is the principle of the gospel. Jesus makes a cardinal change in his life and in his mind on Palm Sunday when John 12 is spoken. This 12th chapter ends with Jesus saying, Though I have performed many miracles, yet they do not believe. So what does he have here? He has a mind change. What is the actuality of his mind change? He came to earth to die. But his message when he came was to establish Israel to set up the kingdom. And so he gave all the rudiments and program for the kingdom message. All of Matthew is dedicated to the kingdom message one way or another. And the Luke and Mark equally reiterate the aspects of the kingdom. The kingdom belonged to the Jews. The kingdom was something God promised Israel. And Jesus is there to fulfill God's promise to Israel but it's going to demand Israel believing in him as a Messiah. And he performed all these wonderful miracles, and many of the people who had miracles performed for them, and many of those who stood by and saw them were Jewish believers. And sometimes we miss that point. That doesn't matter. It didn't matter how many individual Jews were touched by the ministry of Jesus it was the nation of Israel that had to capitulate. And it never did do it. So you may get the idea that Jesus could have continued performing miracles. And he would have won Israel over. And the plan would be complete and the kingdom would be set up on earth. But he wasn't waiting for that. He was waiting for the likes of Nicodemus. He was waiting for the likes of Herod and others who were the establishment of Israel. They were the ones who had to believe in the Messiah and lead the nation to that. Well, Jesus makes an abrupt turn in his life and in his mind on Palm Sunday. Then on Palm Sunday, it is not giving more abundant life as he had taught previously 
more miracles, more blessings, more abundancy of these good things that belong to the kingdom. But he made a mind change that now the gospel is not just for Israel. The gospel becomes God's plan that whosoever believeth can be saved. But the cross must be finished first. That's a radical change that Jesus had to make. You see, if you're not willing to change your mind, if you're not willing to move from what it is you are to what the scriptures open up to you, you'll never become whom God appointed you to be. You see, I'm very simple in this matter. I believe when we get before the Lord, He's going to look into our life to see if we became what He created us to be. And I know this about human beings, that every human being in their lifetime, maybe many times, but at least once, had something to happen to them that made them think, you know, if I had had a different life, if I'd had a different beginning, if things had been different. A young man said to me the other day that was struggling to pay his bills, if I could have just gone to college. All these thoughts come about because that's God's creation of us. Our life doesn't work out to be what we really want it to be, but God's creation of us focuses sometime or another. I had it many times before I came to this message. I had the thought many times, uh, boy, if I had that break, or if I had that much money, or if I could get this thing accomplished right here, look what I'd be. Look who I'd be. That was a thing inside of me that was perhaps part of God's creation. I could have been something else, but that wasn't my probable destiny. My destiny was everybody else's shaped me in such a way that this is what I am, not what I feel I could be. So most people are living in a life that they know is a bit incomplete, uncompleted, because of the events and circumstances of life. Now you know that Christ lives in you. The only way you can ever become what you really are is by allowing your mind to change the things that have happened to you. That's hard on you. That's not an easy thing to do. But it's necessary. So Jesus of Nazareth had a remarkable change in his life on Palm Sunday because it was the time for him to die. This Palm Sunday and this week that was ahead, he would pray that prayer, if it be your will, remove this cup from me, and God would not remove it. His mind was made up, nevertheless, not my will, thine be done. There's another remarkable mind change in the Scriptures. And this is in the Apostle Paul. Now he's saved on the road to Damascus. He has a talk with Jesus out there on the road. 
And he finally consents and says, Lord, what do you have me to do? He's taken by Ananias back to Ananias' home. He's blind, and he needs a miracle. And sure enough, Ananias and the brethren there lay hands on him, and his eyes opened, and he sees again. He gets in with this fellowship of believers. They're Pentecostal because the existing church at that time was a Pentecostal church out of the upper room in Jerusalem when the Lord poured out His Spirit. And so Paul was involved in that. He didn't know much about Jesus of Nazareth. He had to learn it from people who walked with Jesus of Nazareth. That's the outer Christ. He didn't uh, understand all that they were doing, but he was gung-ho and ready because he had promised the Lord he'd do whatever the Lord wanted him to do. And here he was with a group of believers, so he got involved with these Pentecostal believers. And a thought is important here. Whoever you get involved with may not have the key to your destiny. They may not be the thing that you're going to be ultimately involved in. Like most of you in this room never thought a few years ago that somebody would be looking at you and saying Christ lives in you. The Apostle Paul, however, had such a deep call from Christ that it never left him, though he was involved with these. And among his first writings, like in 1 Corinthians, these are writings that took place between about the 15th and 20th chapter of Acts. That's the Acts period. That's the period before the gospel went to the, the Gentiles exclusively and where Paul was still indebted to Israel that she received the gospel, the new gospel of Christ our Savior. The Messiah, Christ is here. And so the apostle Paul was a Pentecostal for a period of time. But the deep call within him, the Christ within him, kept reaching up. And when you read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you see all of the things that he thought and the things that he wrote about. He never goes against what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 12 or 1 Corinthians 14. But he had a remarkable mind change between the two ideas of these two chapters. And that's found in the 13th chapter. Did you ever wonder why the 13th chapter was inserted in there when actually the 14th chapter completes the 12th? Well, that's because Paul had a mind change. He had a radical mind change. What was his mind change? His mind change was that the miraculous power of the Lord is His power and not man's power. You see, that change had to take place somewhere because the Pentecostals of that day felt like that the Holy Spirit had come to give them power, to make them somebody. And so the gifted ministry in the church of that day was that I have this gift, I have this ability, I have this anointing, I have this, I have that. And there was no Christ in it. 
But Paul was already in the instruction from Jesus concerning the Christ life. It was already taking place. And so in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, beginning to read at verse 8, you read of this mind change. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. That's the essence of his mind change. What did he see? He saw now that if Christ lives in the believer, the gifts and the ministries are Christ and not the believer's. That radical change needed to take place. I have grown up in Pentecost. I have experienced it, I think, as well as anybody who lives on the earth today. But I can agree with Paul that most men take the ministries as theirs, as if it were their life, and not Christ in them. So Paul says when men do a thing themselves, they only have part. Have you ever heard of a part prophecy? I've been in many a meeting where somebody got up and prophesied, and you could tell from the prophecy, that's not all, that's not all. Our general theme in Pentecost was we're going to have a great revival. We're still looking for Joel's prophecy to be fulfilled in one way or another. But Paul would say we just got part of this. We don't have the whole of it. Now when you see in the things of God that you only have part, uh, not necessarily with 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, but maybe where you've been fellowshipping, maybe what's in your background religiously. When you see that it's in part, then you need to open up to the last line of this text I read, that that is only in part until that which is perfect has come. We'll get to the perfect in a moment. But who does this? Who makes a change in the way you live and the way you believe? You do it. If God was the final answer to your life, he would force something on you. But the fact is, he has already stated in his word exactly what he means. Just exactly what should take place. And so if you look at the first part of the 13th chapter, for you Bible students, you're going to read seven eyes there. We left our subject yesterday talking about the 16 eyes in Philippians 3. Why do I make a point of that? Because the eye says you have to do something about this. God's not going to do it for you. And he's not going to make you do it. If you're going to move on in God, you're going to have to do it. That's why the eyes are there. There are seven eyes at the beginning of chapter 13 here. He says, and though I have the gift of prophecy, and though I have all faith, and though I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. I bestow all my goods on the poor, and if I give my body to be burned and have not charity. Seven eyes there where he analyzes himself. I, I got this problem. 
even if I could heal all that were sick and haven't come into this love affair with God, I'm nothing. Now that's, that's a very popular statement with the Apostle Paul because he says seven different times in his epistles, I am nothing. You get it? You say, well, he ought to appreciate himself. How can he? He's dead. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. I am crucified. I'm dead. My old man is dead. So how could there be other than the way he states it here? And for you, if you're going on with God, you're going to have to deal with yourself. People are always saying to me, well, God wants me to do it. He'll make me. Or if God wants me to go there, he'll make a way for it. Sometimes that may happen. But when it comes to bringing forth Christ as your life, that's something you're going to have to decide on yourself. You're going to have to decide what to do. What is perfect? I'm going to give you a list of it. Don't have time to go into it. The King James Bible, not many others, but the King James Bible, old King James Bible, will tell you what the perfect is. The perfect is when Christ has come as your life. Write these scriptures down, 2 Corinthians 12 and 9, Ephesians 4 and 13, Philippians 3 and 15, Colossians 1, 28. Colossians 4.12, 2 Timothy 3.17. What? what? Too fast? Is that what you're saying? Surely, surely not. I'll go one more time. 2 Corinthians 12 and 9. Ephesians 4 and 13. Philippians 3 and 15. Colossians 1.28, Colossians 4.12, 2 Timothy 3.17. All of these verses deal with the perfect. Now, when I was a Pentecostal, we said the perfect is the resurrection morning yet to come. No, the perfect is Christ. The perfect is Christ. Paul would say in his letter to the Colossians, verses 26, 27, and 28, that the purpose of the ministry is to present every believer perfect. What am I doing here? I'm presenting every one of you believers perfect before God. Well, now, where are you perfect? Only in spirit. You are perfect because God sees Christ as your life. That's a perfect life. That's what Paul didn't see at that time. He didn't see that at the time he wrote 1 Corinthians 13. 
But he knew that that was coming, that that which was perfect would come. So in the latter part of this 13th chapter, he gives us seven more eyes. <clears throat> you might mark them. He says, beginning at verse 11, For when I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as I am known. Great truth in those words. Who knows you? God knows you. He created you. Who knows what you are as a Christian? God knows it because he put his nature in you, Christ in you. Who doesn't know it? You. You don't know who you are. So we stumble through life, picking up a little here and a little there, hopeful that we will be able to find what it is that fits us. But have you noticed, even Christian people, when they find something for a moment that they think fits them, doesn't last very long. Why? Because the perfect is not your life, the perfect is his life. And so when that which is perfect has come, Paul said, I grew up, I became a man. I really became a man. I really became a woman, we should say. I really became who I was supposed to be. When I put away childish things, the things I played with, when I put them away, then is when I came to what it was I was intended to be. And he said right now, we look through a glass darkly. We look through a glass darkly. We can't see the thing clearly. I know there's some of you in this room <clears throat> who this week have had difficulty seeing this thing. Well, take those words to heart. You're looking through a glass darkly right now. Right now. You can't see it clearly. But that's the work of the Holy Spirit. You can't see it clearly because most of us as humans are used to seeing a thing at a natural point. Naturally, you say, well, I can't see that. I don't understand that. But from a spiritual viewpoint, when you can't see something, you wait on the Lord till the glass becomes clear. That takes a little time. It'll take time for the Holy Spirit to reveal Christ in some of you. Others of you might see through the glass quickly, instantly. But for many, it may take time. Give him that time. You're seeing through a glass darkly, but what you're seeing there is perfect. It's just that you can't see it with these eyes perfectly. So Paul had a radical change in his mind. The change was, theoretically, that the gifts are not gifts of men. They are gifts of the Christ that lives in men. And each man exercises that gift the way God created him. That was a radical change. When you get to Ephesians 4, where he talks about the ministries in the body of Christ, it's the same thing. Those are Christ's ministries. Christ is the apostle, the prophet, the pastor, the teacher, the evangelist. He is all of these things. That was a change that had to come. 
That's a great change that needs to come in our world today from men doing things where we can all find something wrong with it. It's spotted. That shouldn't be there. Shouldn't have said that. Shouldn't have done this. God's, Christ's ministries ought not to be turned into money. And that's what so often happens. The money becomes more important than the ministry. That's because that which is perfect has not come to that believer. But it will in time so come about. Well, we'll stop right here and resume next week for more of this great conference held in South Africa years ago. And what a wonderful blessing it is to be able to hear this today. And boy, does it hold up and stand up for what's going on in our world today. Now, let me encourage you to go to our website. This program is produced by the Christ Life Fellowship. And if you'll go to christ-life.org, you can read all about us. And even more importantly, go to the top of the page, click on the fellowship tab, and then down will come a lot of information on how you can start your own in-home Christ Life Fellowship. We have all you need to know. It's all free. And what a blessing it is to you, because I do it, and what a blessing it is knowing you are spreading this great in Christ message to the world. Again, Christ-Life.org. Robbie Litzman, thank you. You allow us to go into the archives each week. Valerie Hill, thank you for doing our Twitter account. Tammy Laycock, thank you for doing our weekly podcast reports, and this program is produced weekly by the wonderfully and talented Teresa Ferraro. Until next time, I'm Brad Wilson, Loving the Christ Life.